Hi, I am Jada Siri Ramos. I am the producer of A Public Affair here on WORT. And I have a request. Madison Magazine is running their annual Best of Madison competition. And I need you to go nominate A Public Affair as the best podcast Madison has to offer. All you have to do is go to tinyurl.com slash vote W-O-R-T. Nominations are open all throughout this month, and you can nominate us every single day. Now, the actual voting doesn't take place till June, but if we're not nominated, we can't be voted on. So go nominate us. Again, that's tinyurl.com slash vote W-O-R-T. Thanks so much, and I'm so excited for everyone to know that A Public Affair is the best podcast in Madison. Low power frequency radio modulation The big sound from underground We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before We bring the sound communication of our tribal war Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night Attempt triangulation of our station in the... In February last year, a Nicaraguan friend of mine I'll call Juan traveled almost 2,000 miles to the U.S. border with Mexico and turned himself in to the Border Patrol to ask for asylum. Along the way, he endured hunger, thirst, and days of waiting in packed, dark warehouses and trucks, an experience he called hell. He was one of more than 160,000 Nicaraguans who U.S. border officials arrested last year. Five years ago, the number of Nicaraguans who turned themselves in at the border was barely over 1,000. This rapid increase in Nicaraguan migrants was part of a spike in overall migration last year. For the first time, U.S. border officials arrested more than 2 million undocumented migrants at the border. In January, the Biden administration announced new policies aimed at curbing this rate of migration and making it harder to apply for asylum. Some Latin American countries have also announced new policies making it harder to migrate within the region. The situation for migrants changes so rapidly and is so politicized that the reasons migrants are leaving home and what they face can often be obscured. Today, I'll be talking with two guests who can shed light on the human stories behind the headlines about migration from Central America, and they'll help us make sense of how U.S. policies impact migrants. I'm joined today by independent journalist and photographer Jeff Abbott, who lives in Guatemala and writes a regular column about Latin America called The Other Americans for the Progressive Magazine. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you for having me. I'm also really happy to have with us today Astrid Carolina Montealegre, an attorney with the Nicaraguan American Human Rights Alliance. Thank you so much for joining us on A Public Affair, Astrid. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. We're um, going to dive into so many issues today to talk about. It's such a complex situation. Um, and we're going to focus on Jeff's perspectives in the first half. He's going to have to be leaving us in the second half. So we'll, we'll focus especially on Nicaragua in the second half with Astrid Montealegre. Um, we'd also love for you to join our conversation. Listeners, if you have a question for our guests about the situation in Central America, migration from Central America, U.S. migration policies, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WRT Talk or message a public affair on Facebook. So, so much to talk about. What I think would be helpful to start with, Jeff, if you could give us just an overview of migration trends in Central America right now, Mm -hmm. the numbers of people that are leaving from where and where they're headed generally. I know that's a lot, but just, you know, a little, little overview. (laughs) Well, um, right now uh, we could say that there's a ever increasing uh, humanitarian crisis throughout the region. Um, Numbers, I would actually say are impossible to say because migration is often due to the policies that are put in place is often um, a a hidden thing. I've talked to friends who, you know, had neighbors who migrated and didn't know they were migrating until the day they left. Um, I had a friend who migrated a couple years ago and I didn't know she was until she was in route that she was migrating. Um, but a lot of this is based on, you know, um, the impacts of the pandemic, um, changes in policies. Um, you know, we've seen a massive influx of uh, Venezuelan, Haitian, uh, Nicaraguan migrants heading north towards the United States. Um, which historically we haven't seen. Um, and, you know, in part, that's the result of changes within the uh, 
the, the regional um, uh, visa, visa requirements that countries require. Um, but it's a, mass, a massive movement of people who are in need. And what are some of the primary factors you're seeing, Jeff, for, for people leaving there from Guatemala? Well, so it, Guatemala is, there's, region, there's regional causes across Guatemala. Um, there's a lot of climate change um, uh, causes. Um, a couple years ago, in 2020, there was the back to hurricanes that hit the region. Um, many people who were impacted by those, hur- uh, by those hurricanes have actually intended to migrate. Um, there's a community called Campur in northern Guatemala where a large majority of the population has migrated due to the lack of um, support after the hurricanes uh, flooded their town with uh, uh, like 50 feet of water or something like that. But it, their village was transformed into a lake. Um, other parts, it's poverty. Um, other parts, it's the lack of opportunity. Uh, there's a huge problem right now of young, educated, um, young people leaving uh, and, tr- and seeking to reach the United States because there is no work. Um, added to that, even with the Guatemala minimum wage, you can't, one can't support a family. Um, it's impossible. Uh, I'd like to bring you in here, Astrid, and ask uh, about uh, factors influencing uh, the rise in, in Nicaraguan migration. Unlike their neighbors to the north, Guatemala, El Salvador, Hondurans, um, Nicaraguans didn't migrate in large numbers, at least to the U.S., before 2018. Can you describe some of the changes for us since then and the reasons so many Nicaraguans are leaving home now? Yes, aside from the reasons previously mentioned for Guatemala, which is um, primarily uh, economic reasons, um, Since 2018, there's been uh, political and social unrest in Nicaragua, which has resulted in a very, very steep spike in the migrants of Nicaragua, the number of migrants from Nicaragua that are coming to the United States. This has actually um, resulted in a humanitarian parole policy being issued by the United States, which includes Nicaragua, Cuba, Venezuela, and Haiti in an attempt to respond to this crisis. And from the numbers we're seeing just for the month of January, it appears that the program has been a success because those numbers have been reduced significantly. Thank you. That's Astrid Monte Alegre, attorney with the Nicaraguan American Human Rights Alliance, a nonprofit organization that promotes and defends the human rights of Nicaraguan migrants and refugees. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM, Madison. My name is Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking with Astrid Montealegre and journalist Jeff Abbott, joining us from Guatemala about migration from Central America. Please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9, if you'd like to join the conversation today. Since uh, Astrid just brought up policy there, Jeff, I'd like to just continue along those lines. Uh, In January, you wrote a piece for the progressive titled Expanding Title 42 and Blowing Up U.S. Asylum. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about these recent U.S. policy changes that Astrid just mentioned and how they're impacting asylum seekers from Central America? Yeah, so part of these the, 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 the impacts of these new changes is that it, historically people could apply for asylum upon reaching the United States border, and they could request uh, any um, port of entry. But what's happening now is, A, because of, of the various uh, pr- um, deterrences that have been put in place, people are, are being forced to take more dangerous routes to try to enter the United States, since that's been shut down by Title 42. Added to that, Um, There is a transit ban in place where people who have crossed multiple countries are unable to apply for such uh, programs, which actually impacts a lot of Venezuelan migrants and Haitian migrants who are trying to reach the United States, primarily crossing through the Darien Gap, which connects uh, Panama and and Colombia. Um, But all in all, it's, you know, the the continuation of these policies that have impacted migrants and put them at further risk uh, throughout the, the last decade or so. Can you tell us, you mentioned uh, Title 42. Can you tell us a little bit more about that for listeners who might not be clear on what that is? 
Yeah, Title 42 was a Trump-era um, response to the COVID pandemic. It's a CDC order that basically um, used health reasons to expel certain migrants. Uh, I, I can't remember all of the the, the 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 citizen or the nationalities that were abandoned initially, but it was primarily Hondurans, Mexicans, Guatemalans, and Salvadorans. Um, that's since been uh, expanded to include Haitians, um, Venezuelans, and I think Nicaraguans, but don't quote me on that. <laughs> um, but it's still been in place and there's been, the Biden administration has been uh, trying to repeal it, but it's faced a lot of challenges within the courts in the United States. Um, the Republican, Republican controlled states have challenged on a number of occasions. And last I heard, it's officially ending in May of uh, this year. And the end effect then of Title 42 has been what? Um, <laughs> I personally see it as being, um, it's hard for me to say um, because I'm a, not on the border. Um, we have seen some trends where in the number of migrants being encountered by um, the Customs and Border Protection Agency have gone in decline. Um, but, you know, even with Title 42 in place, people were go trying to go. And when there was, you know, the talk of it ending, people were trying to go. Um, I, I did see one interesting data point recently where, um, according to the CB, uh, CBP data, uh, like half of the the expulsions under the order uh, were re-encounters of people who were trying to migrate. Um, but I haven't been able to expand on that. Um, In other words, people who arrived were, were sent, sent back. to Mexico or back to their home countries and then tried to re-enter the U.S. Yes. Okay. Something like that, yeah. Um, and, you know, the United States has maintained a... The you know the rapid uh, the rapid uh, expulsion of citizens, primarily of Guatemala, Salvador, and Honduras, uh, through deportation. Um, I mean, really, that only slowed down for a brief period during the 2020 pandemic. Um, 2021, 2022, it returned to, to normal uh, after peaking in 2019 with over 54,000 deportations of just Guatemalans from the United States. So in other words, I think this is an important clarification, and it, it just shows how complex the situation is. Guatemalans who have showed up at the border in recent years and requested asylum have been automatically deported, correct? It's not, no, not automatically, not all of them. Some have okay. gotten through. There are, there were measures, like there were ways people got through. Um, I'm not fully aware of that because my reporting primarily is based here in, mm -hmm. in Central America. So the U.S. border side of stuff is a little bit sure. uh, hazy for me. Uh -huh. um, but there were people who got through and, uh, and requested asylum, but it's, it was a minority. And then other cases, um, I, sorry, I, I, someone was actually explained this to me recently and it's just, it's not sticking in my brain at the moment. Well, but, let's um, go to, to Astrid here I, I because you can give us... Yeah. Yeah. So, I was going to explain the Title 42 um, in its implementation uh, is in violation of uh, not just international standards, but also national standards for protection of uh, human rights, particularly the rights of asylees to ask for relief at the border. That's the way the law is written. But Title 42 allows the immigration officer to have discretion. So this is why we have a disparate impact, because in some states we see Title 42 being applied, in others it is not. So the migrant is able to get informed um, on a day-to-day -day basis and decide at which port of entry they can present themselves to increase the possibility of being admitted into the country to present their asylum case and decrease the possibility of Title 42 being applied. For example, we know that Texas um, applies uh, Title 42 pretty much in almost every case, whereas California uh, pretty much acts like it doesn't exist. So that's where we see the discrepancy is in the application of the actual policy. So again, uh, just to <laughs> underscore a very complex situation. Go ahead, Jeff. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for helping me understand better. <laughs> um, let's let's. Uh, I was then going to follow up with you again, Astrid, about the situation for Nicaraguans because, um, unlike Guatemalans, Mexicans, for example, um, in recent years, generally speaking, Nicaraguans have been able to come into the country 
usually detained for some period, right, and, and request asylum. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Actually, um, when the political crisis started in 2018, we saw that the majority of Nicaraguans were being detained. Then with the application of Title 42 during the pandemic, it was um, some Nicaraguans were being permitted to come in and ask for asylum. But for the most part, they were also being turned away, um, which is why we had uh, the sort of... uh, reaction, policy reaction of what's being called humanitarian parole. It's uh, arguable whether it's quite humanitarian or not, but um, this new policy to try to prevent Nicaraguan migrants, Venezuelan, Haitian, and Cubans from falling into the hands of human traffickers, from putting themselves at risk, and from also being denied the right to present their applications because the administration recognizes that they are being persecuted politically in some way. So um, they, they've carved out this sort of exception from the rest of the region, but we, we still have the problem of, for example, the Northern Triangle countries who historically have always come to the United States for economic reasons. This includes Guatemala and El Salvador. And um, the current policies don't address uh, this crisis. So um, the current political climate is is pretty much a band-aid to what needs to be a deep, deep uh, re-establishment of what is immigration law in this country to actually address the current problems. Thank you for that, Astrid. And we'll we'll pick up on that with you, Jeff, because I know you can only stay with us for another Mm -hmm. eight minutes or so and and get your perspectives from where you sit in Guatemala on, on what uh, the current policies are either doing or not doing in terms of causing Guatemalans and others from the Northern Triangle to move and what you think uh, could needs to happen in terms of migration from, from a, both a U.S. perspective, but also perhaps um, within Central America, which is, I know, something you've written about as well. Yeah, I just want to actually point out, though, that um, all these, these measures are basically creating a series of walls along the migratory routes that are containing people further and further south. Uh, so like Mexico is a border now, or a wall for Guatemalans, et cetera, south. Guatemala has become a border for all the countries further south. Um, the Guatemalan immigration um, ministry and the police have been expelling uh, migrants from all over the world recently, where around 200 people expelled. And just recently, um, they there's been fears within the, the, the network of Catholic church-backed uh, migrant shelters that the government can start cracking down on the people that support migrants uh, crossing through the region. Um, but uh, yeah, it's honestly, you know, there is there are a lot of problems facing the region, especially as we see the deterioration of democratic institutions and further increase in poverty and desperation uh, among the populations. Um, the, the Biden administration, uh, led by uh, Vice President Kamala Harris, ha- has uh, launched efforts to bring more um, investment into the region. Um, she's obtained around $4.2 billion in uh, private investment in the region, uh, according to uh, the White House. Um, but I fear that that won't have any impact for resolving the causes of migration. Uh, especially from these three countries, Guatemala, Salvador, Honduras. Um, you know, the region is known as having really, really lax labor laws, um, you know, putting most of the control into the hands of business. Uh, minimum wage is low for the cost of living. Um, so I think that, you know, if if the White House, if the United States is really interested in resolving the causes of migration, we have to address these historical causes because you know these are the groups that you know the United States supported during the, the internal armed conflicts in the region, and they've you know built a system of impunity that really honestly sees people migrating as you know the only way to develop the country. Um, at the end of twenty at the end of twenty twenty one, the Guatemala registered the highest uh, GDP growth in the history of the country at like eight point four percent, or one of the highest. But the reason why they reached 84.4% was because the Ministry of the Economy and the Central Bank calculated the GDP growth with remittances. Uh-huh. 
which that year were $15.2 billion. Last year, they were 18.040 billion dollars. And, you know, I've had people uh, who have connections with the elite saying, telling me that they're really their, their economic, their, their economic development model is sending people to the United States to send back remittances. So I think in order to resolve the causes, it has to start there uh, rather than, um, you know, <laughs> trying to, uh, you know, resolve policy in other, in other ways, just acknowledge that the, the, drivers here. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I completely agree with Jeff there. I think uh, the United States needs to address the issue of brain drain and economic development in, in these countries uh, to, to actually systematically address the immigration crisis at the border. I completely agree. Thank you, Jeff. Of course. <laughs> You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with journalist Jeff Abbott and lawyer Astrid Montealegre about migration from and within Central America and recent policies impacting migrants. If you'd like to join our conversation, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. Uh, we only have you for a couple more minutes, Jeff, so I, I just want to follow up with one last question with you. You also published a piece recently uh, about something that hasn't been covered a lot in the U.S. press, uh, asylum seekers hitting new walls in Latin America, and you mentioned this briefly a moment ago, and this piece focuses on Costa Rica in particular, which has long been a destination for migrants and asylum seekers, particularly from Nicaragua. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about these policies within the region that are restricting movement and and restricting uh, the right of asylum as well? So the the government of Rodriguez Chavez um, issued a decree uh, at the end of December where he... um, basically reform, um, put, in, put in place new requirements for applying for asylum, accusing the majority of people who apply for asylum in the Central American country as being, um, let's see here, uh, let me find the exact quote, um, as being, um, da, 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 um, being abused by the, the thousands just that come to, you know, for, because of economic reasons, calling them economic migrants and basically eliminating um, the ease of applying, and that has put migrants at risk further down the line. Um, many mi- migrants arrive to the country and they don't know about the opportunity of applying for asylum right off the bat. And according to the new reforms, they only have about a month to apply. And it's a very slow process and, you know, many uh, aren't able to, you know, to, to, to access it in time. On top of that, they're not allowed to work while they're going through the process of applying. So that means that, you know, families are left without an income um and on top of that there it's tied into what i was mentioning earlier about transit bans because you know migrants are trying to head north if they've crossed into costa rica or across panama they are um incapable or uneligible to apply for the the u.s uh, paroles um so it makes the whole system it, it's meant as another deterrence but it makes the whole situation uh, far more complicated yeah, when you put all of this together, what both of you are describing, it it's starting to seem like sort of a systematic uh, approach to restricting the right to move and, and restricting escape valves within the region, um, which, of course, is really concerning. Go ahead, Jeff. Oh, I was going to say, it's, it's, uh, it's putting restrictions in, but for the poorest of the poor, the people who don't have access to you know, buying a plane ticket. Because, you know, many of these cases or these application processes, you have to apply in country to get the patrol or parole. Many of the people who are migrating don't have that. Many of the Haitian migrants aren't even coming from Haiti. They're coming from Brazil or Chile, where, the, you know, where they migrated uh, following the, the earthquake in 2010. So it's just it's targeting the, the you know, the, the most vulnerable populations and, and meaning uh, making it almost impossible for them to find a way to, to survive. That's a, a really important point and uh, speaks to that uh, new policy that we were talking about a little bit ago, which we'll talk about more with Astrid here in a minute, uh, that the U.S. has extended these 30,000 per month um, parole permits to Haitians, Cubans, Nicaraguans, and Venezuelans. But of course, as you say, Jeff, you need to have resources to be able to navigate that process 
right? Um, so it's not necessarily a solution for everyone. Well, I want to thank you so much, Jeff Abbott, for being with us. I know you have to uh, go. Um, Jeff mm-hmm. Abbott is an independent journalist and photographer who lives in Guatemala and writes a regular column about Latin America called The Other Americans for the Progressive Magazine. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jeff. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you. And we're going to continue now with uh, Astrid Carolina Montealegre from the Nicaraguan Human Rights Nicaraguan American Human Rights Alliance, which is a nonprofit organization that promotes and defends the human rights of Nicaraguan migrants and refugees who had to flee their home country due to persecution. Um, let's pick up there, um, Astrid, where where we left off with the situation for um, Nicaraguans who are trying to flee um, for political persecution right now. We can we can stick with with just that for the moment. And, and what their options are now with this new U.S. policy. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. As uh, Jeff mentioned, um, the politics and the policies are really geared towards keeping um, migrants out. And I would say more than um, just being targeted towards the most vulnerable, I would say uh, these, these policies go to sort of criminalize migration and go on even to criminalize uh, the workers who work with migrants um, by making these these actions uh, criminal activity. Uh, but as he stated, this new parole is very limited in its reach and its scope. It's only accessible for people who can afford to purchase plane tickets uh, to the United States because arrival has to be by air. And it's only available to people who are able to obtain a legal sponsorship through which the sponsor actually initiates the parole request. So uh, as you can imagine, not everybody in Latin America, in Venezuela, Cuba, Haiti, and Nicaragua is going to have a contact in the United States. So um, it's, it's not as accessible as it sounds. And we still have the issue of Title 42, where people who are asylum seekers seeing persecution, uh, fleeing persecution are being turned away at the border because of Title 42, which is in direct violation of both United States and international law, because we're denying these asylum seekers the right to ask for protection. And that is the case now since this new policy, this Biden administration policy has been implemented, is that, for example, all Nicaraguans are are turned away if they show up at the border and ask for asylum now, correct? That is correct. And as a human rights organization that protects the rights of those who are seeking asylum, uh, we believe that although this opens the door, this humanitarian parole opens the door for people who would not have otherwise qualified to come to the United States because persecution is not an aspect of the humanitarian parole, it does leave those who are actually persecuted out of the equation. How so exactly? Because if somebody who is persecuted is unable to find a sponsor and apply through the humanitarian parole process online and they find themselves in Mexico, they are legally unable to present themselves at the border because under current policy, they would be turned away simply because they're Nicaraguan, Venezuelan, Haitian or Cuban. I have a very limited understanding of international asylum law. Is that legal under international law to turn somebody away who is fleeing persecution? It is not legal, and um, we are currently gathering our efforts and our resources uh, to present the legal claims necessary because it is absolutely not legal to deny somebody the right to request asylum solely based on their nationality specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, have you been hearing stories at all from folks since this new policy was implemented in January about what has happened to them when they presented at the border? Well, um, we have not had anybody report since January that they have presented themselves at the border and been turned away because um, we've done a very... uh, uh, widespread education effort to let people know that if they try to enter illegally, they will not be eligible for this program. So what we have done is try to set up a, a database where people could sign up to be sponsors and people who are interested in uh, 
humanitarian parole can also sign up to be matched with those sponsors. So um, we have actually seen a significant drop in Nicaraguans presenting themselves at the border since January. So, in other words, your inform- your organization is really trying to facilitate information and facilitate the process for people to obtain those sponsors and navigate that process to obtain one of those 30,000 spots every month. Yes, and we're providing help with uh, translations because the application is not available in Spanish. And just just to know, I know we're focusing on Nicaraguans, but our Creole brothers and Creole speaking brothers and sisters from Haiti are at a severe disadvantage with this program because the CBP one application, which is a required second step, is not available in Haitian Creole. So serious linguistic barriers for for navigating this process. If you don't have somebody who can help you out uh, with the English, you're you're shut out. In other words. That's correct. I'm glad you brought up uh, the issue with Haitians. Um, Do you have a sense of whether um, this is also limiting the flow of uh, economic migrants trying to come to the U.S. um, and not present at the border? Well, those statistics, we do not have them because, unfortunately, uh, CBP doesn't ask migrants why they're coming and even if they did we we can't really say if they're fully just for economic reasons or for political social reasons but we we can't say that the number of migrants in totality has been significantly reduced Um, but i i do want to echo what jeff was saying about um, the remittances and how these countries have relied on the remittances. Nicaragua is a prime example when I, I think our, our highest gross domestic product at this point is remittances. <laughs> um, so the, there are entire families that rely on, on these remittances to get through the month because even the, the minimum wage does not cover enough, uh, does not cover basic needs. Yeah, and uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the economic situation in Nicaragua right now and and how that plays a factor in the increasing number of migrants coming from the country, both to the U.S. and and to elsewhere in in the Central American region? Well, um, the economy in Nicaragua relies on remittances, uh, so uh, there is that tendency that cultural tendency that Jeff was mentioning where migrating to the United States becomes a solution um, more so than looking or finding a job simply because jobs are not available. Um, Also the jobs that are available uh, for example in Nicaragua uh, are generally linked to the current government regime so in order to obtain those positions you have to have a, a membership in the party that's in power. You also have to have some sort of uh, sponsorship by someone who's uh, in cahoots with the current regime. So there's a lot of nepotism that goes on. Um, Finding a job by one's own attributes and skills is, is a limited option for most in Nicaragua. You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. My name is Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking with Astrid Carolina Montealegre, an attorney with the Nicaraguan American Human Rights Alliance, which is a nonprofit organization that promotes and defends the human rights of Nicaraguan migrants and refugees. We're talking about migration uh, from not only Nicaragua, but Central America more broadly today. If you'd like to join the conversation, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. I'd like to talk a little bit more, Astrid, about the situation that Nicaraguan migrants and asylum seekers are facing when they get to the United States, and and that's where your organization comes in as well. Can you tell us more about the Nicaraguan American Human Rights Alliance and why the organization started in 2019? Yes, the organization started in a direct relation to Nicaraguans who were being held in detention centers. Uh, while they were seeking resolution of their asylum petitions. And so we created this alliance uniting different human rights organizations that were providing support to Nicaraguans across the United States so that we can have a legal supervision and provide them these services free of cost through a network of volunteers 
that help us complete documents and translate documents so that they could be submitted to USCIS. We do screen individuals. We ask them to send proof of persecution to our email address, and we review the evidence prior to accepting each case. We also help these individuals with their cultural insertion by helping them obtain their driver's license, letting them know where they could register their kids in school, their local uh, medical clinic for regular checkups, et cetera, and, and just sort of navigate the legal and cultural process of coming to the United States so that they can regulate their status and become uh, responsible citizens and give back to our community. I think it would be great to um, share a little bit more, if you could, about uh, what that process looks like for someone who is fleeing persecution. You mentioned your organization was founded after the uprising in Nicaragua in 2018 when many people uh, fled for their lives. Um, so say someone gets to the United States, uh, that's one hurdle crossed, and then they successfully apply for asylum, and they're in that process. How long does it take, and what are the steps that they have to go through to get uh, a formal recognition of asylum? And um, in the meantime, how do they make a living and, and navigate their way in American life? Well, uh, for most people, unfortunately, it's a very uh, grueling and long process. Uh, unfortunately, most asylum seekers are not people who come in on a plane with their visa, staying with family and friends. So I won't I won't refer to to that situation because that's not the uh, what we see most of the time. I'm going to refer to the situation where somebody flees with the clothes that they have on their back by land and they reached the U.S. border with uh, barely any identification, if, if at all. And so uh, this person has to tell the officer that they're scared, that they're fleeing for their life, and uh, pretty much prove who they are and what they're saying as best they can so that they can pass what's called the credible fear interview. If they pass this initial credible fear interview, then the officer will either let them come into the United States and stay with a friend or family member who has decided to take responsibility for this person throughout their legal process, or they're forced to remain in the detention center throughout their process. Then they have to prepare a personal declaration that has to be translated to English or else the court will not review it. And all of their evidence also has to be translated to English. They do have a hearing in front of a judge in which a government attorney questions them and questions the evidence that they've presented. Uh, this process can take anywhere from one to three years. And if somebody were to pay for it privately, the legal fees can range from anywhere to eight to 15 to $20,000. Um, so uh, what we do is we provide this free of charge to them through a network of volunteers and um, through legal supervision so that they're able to navigate it within their resources because they're not even able to apply for a work permit until it has been 150 days from the day they presented their asylum application, which at minimum comes to be six months. That's the application, not when they present it at the border. So, Correct. So, yeah, it could be quite a long time without working. That's right. And you mentioned that some people, if they don't have somewhere to go when they are paroled, uh, find themselves in detention. Have you heard stories about this? Do you have a sense of, you know, length of stay for people in detention centers and what the conditions are like in those detention centers around the United States? Yes, the conditions vary. We've actually had some of our beneficiaries join um, class action suits against uh, USCIS because of the conditions at these detention centers. We've had a case, the longest case we've had of somebody staying in a detention center was a year and a half, almost two years. And we've also had cases where detention centers are full and um, migrants are sent to prisons and forced to be with uh, common prison population, common criminals, which poses a re-victimization because you have to think that these are people who um, have not committed crimes 
And they also have a fear of authority because they have been persecuted by the police in their country. So placing them in the situation where they have to succumb to somebody who's in a uniform, in a position of authority, um, can can be quite re-traumatizing for most of them. And some of these detention centers are privately run facilities, correct? Most of them are. Yes, that's correct. So they're, they're private corporations. I've heard anecdotally that conditions vary, as you said, extremely between the privately run facilities or detention centers and ICE-run detention centers. Do you have any further sense of that? Um, that's correct. Um, the ICE-run detention centers tend to uh, follow the practices that are within the, the handbooks that obey uh, human rights <laughs> standards. Um, the private facilities tend to veer more often, and, and we see that more issues arise with the private facilities. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, these private facilities, of course, are, are profiting from the system. That's correct. They do have contracts with the United States government, where uh, as it's, it's my understanding that there is an actual dollar amount placed uh, per prisoner. This is really helpful, I think, um, for our audience to gain a sense of um, what people are facing, not only in the the treacherous journey to get to the United States, but once they get here and apply for asylum. So thank you um, very much, Astrid. I'd like to turn uh, here in in the time we have left to a recent breaking story, um, which I, I, I hope you can tell us more about. On Thursday last week, the Nicaraguan government deported 222 political prisoners to the U.S., many of whom had been in jail for years. Um, Can you tell us more about these Nicaraguan political prisoners and why they were imprisoned and the government's decision to deport them to the U.S. just this last week? Um, Sure, absolutely. Uh, Well, the, the political prisoners were incarcerated by the Ortega Murillo regime pretty much for, uh, demanding democracy, demanding free and fair elections in the country, and for standing up and denouncing human rights abuses that have been committed in the country um, throughout uh, the reign of this dictatorship. So we're not too clear on the exact reason why they were released, other than what the government has said officially, which is it was their own decision. Um, both the government of the United States and the government of Nicaragua have uh, have stated that publicly, that it was the government of Nicaragua which unilaterally decided to release the prisoners. Uh, upon their release, they did come to the United States, and unfortunately, about 109 of them did not have any friends or family in the country where they they could have homes that would receive them. So uh, the Nicaraguan diaspora created a task force where we worked with a number of organizations, uh, NARA included, uh, to place the ex-political prisoners in homes so that their insertion into society can, can be a little bit more smooth. And, and we're, we're happy to say that it, it took us 48 hours, but uh, today, Monday, everybody's been placed in a home. That's great, and that's an amazing feat of organization that you and these other organizations have undertaken. I'm sure it's been a a, a busy time trying to do that so suddenly. Um, and are are these uh, ex-political prisoners, these people, um, what's their asylum status? Are they being put in the asylum process in the U.S.? Okay, well, the United States is giving them the legal status of humanitarian parole, which is uh, similar to the process that we were talking about, with the exception that the applications for the job permit will be waived, the fee will be waived, and uh, it appears that the process will be streamlined, that they will be getting their work authorization faster than most applicants. Um, So we are working on that with the Department of State. And I do want to also mention that the Department of State has has been amazing with the support and the resources that they've provided to them through the agency uh, for victims of torture. Also, the government of Spain 
has stepped in and offered citizenship to any of the ex-political prisoners that want to go to Spain. So uh, we're still working through that and, and getting a list together, and some of the political prisoners will be taking the Spanish government up on that option. You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. My name is Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking with Astrid Montealegre, an attorney with the Nicaraguan American Human Rights Alliance. We're talking about migration from Nicaragua and Central America, and we're also talking about the recent release last week of over 200 political prisoners. Uh, there's still time to give us a quick call if you want to join the conversation at 608-256-2001, extension 9. Um, Astrid, you mentioned the Nicaraguan diaspora here in the United States, and as I mentioned in my intro, you know this hasn't historically been a place, the United States, where huge numbers of Nicaraguans have come. There was an influx in the 1980s, of course, um, during the the Civil War, Contra War, there, um, but uh, since then, you know, it's been sort of this slow trickle, and many Nicaraguans have gone to Costa Rica or elsewhere, Spain. Um, but suddenly, we have this community of uh, growing community of Nicaraguans in the United States and many places, for example, here in Wisconsin, where there haven't been large numbers of Nicaraguans before. This is a little bit more of a, a broad question, but what's your sense of the, the Nicaraguan diaspora in the United States right now and uh, how that community is doing and, and uh, establishing itself in American life since there have been so many in recent years? Well, you know, that's a, that's a great question because uh, the Nicaraguan community, as you mentioned, our, our, legi- our largest numbers came in the 80s, my, my parents included. That's the reason I was born here was because there was a civil war in 1979 and the United States government gave asylum to uh, Nicaraguans. So my parents were uh, part of that group and it was that group that came here during those times that had children who are now Nicaraguan Americans like myself. And so the community of support is very diverse because we also have added to this group the members who have come since 2008 and have successfully become part of society. Um, Some of them are residents. Some of them are even applying for their citizenship now. And um, so it's very diverse, the group of Nicaraguans that are here in the United States in terms of the times that we arrived. But we're also very diverse in our political ideologies. We have Republicans, we have Democrats, with everything in between and everything off the side. So um, when it comes to moments like these where we have, uh, for example, 109 political prisoners that need to be received in their homes, it's great to see how we come together in unity and we put those differences to the side. And it's, it's inspiring and it's moving because you see a future for Nicaragua. You see that there is the capacity for the country to rebuild and to eventually become democratic and for people to live in harmony despite having different ideological views. Yeah, you mentioned that uh, divisive polarization um, that exists here uh, in the United States among Nicaraguans, but uh, certainly exists in Nicaragua very much, tearing families apart in many cases since uh, 2018 and the political unrest there. Um, how how do you see families navigating that here in the United States? I'm sure there are many uh, pro-Ortega-Murillo families, and there are many, of course, as you mentioned, who um, don't support the current regime. Um, how do you see that tension playing out here in the United States? It's a tension that we have dealt with, unfortunately, for many generations. Um, you had families that supported the prior dictatorship, which was Samosa, and families who participated in the revolution, uh, brothers and sisters fighting against each other. So unfortunately, that's uh, transgenerational trauma that the Nicaraguan community does have to deal with. But thankfully, here in the United States, uh, there's enough respect for law and order where uh, we as a culture are able to learn how to deal with our differences in a nonviolent way. And I think that's a great lesson we need to learn so that we don't keep repeating the same mistakes we have committed throughout our history as Nicaraguans.
Finally, before we have to let you go, Astrid, um, can you talk to us about ways that people can reach out and support migrants here in the United States and particularly um, people seeking asylum and whether or not there are any particular things that the Nicaraguan American Human Rights Alliance are doing that you'd like to uh, share with our audience? Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity. We are currently setting up a mentorship program for anybody who wants to be like a big brother or big sister to our political refugees to help them navigate through the American society as, as we know it today, um, considering that some of these people are going to be ex-political prisoners and, and will have to sort of come, come to date with what's going on in society uh, because they have been in prison, some of them, for uh, more than a year or two. Um, so one of the things that we've done is we've created an email, which is Nara Help. that's N-A-H-R-A, help at gmail.com and anybody could send their name uh, city and state that they're in and how they would like to help either through mentorship or through sending uh, clothes or personal hygiene products to the homes where these uh, people have been placed. Uh, we would be giving you an address and you could order through your online service of choice and send um, clothing items and personal hygiene items. We would be sending the person's uh, sizes and uh gender so that um, the shopping can be made accordingly and also um, other than in-kind donations cash donations are also accepted and our website is www.naraglobal.org we're always looking for volunteers to help us translation and to help us fill out the legal documents as well so um, you could either find us on the web or send us an email at nadahelp at gmail.com Thanks so much. That's uh, Astrid Montealegre of the Nicaraguan American Human Rights Alliance, uh, an attorney and a longtime uh, activist with them. It's been a pleasure talking with you today, Astrid. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me and for bringing light to this important subject. I'm your host, Douglas Haynes, and I'd like to thank today's engineer, Dave, producer, Jade, and news director, Sholly for your help, and thank you listeners for joining us today on A Public Affair here at community-supported radio, WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. Today uh, on Madison Bookbeat, we have author Stephen Wright live in the studio with host Dave Ahrens to talk about his recent book, The Coyotes of Carthage. Stay tuned for Madison Bookbeat. Another pirate station. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Attempt triangulation of our station in the fight. Straight from the base, deep down, low precision. High crime treason, we broadcast in sedition. Like the Wall Street morning afternoon edition. Commandeering airwaves from unknown.